Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. As I record this, we are now in the second week of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, Russia seems to be stepping up operations on civilian targets. And a lot of people are wondering what's next, uh, both what's next for Ukraine and what does this mean for the rest of us? Where does this all end? How does it end? Uh, does it end? Uh, here to discuss all of that is Congressman Ro Khanna. He is a congressman representing California's 17th district. That includes uh, Silicon Valley. He's also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And he is the author of A Manifesto for Dignity in a Digital Age. Please welcome Congressman Ro Khanna. Welcome to the podcast, Congressman Khanna. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. So as we sit here, as we record this right now, 100% of Russia's pre-staged combat power is in Ukraine. Uh, we're seeing evidence of increased targeting of civilian areas. Um, what, what happens next? What happens next for the Ukrainian people? Things seem to be getting worse, not better. Well, it's unconscionable what Putin has done, and he is committing arguably war crimes, and he should be tried at The Hague for the intentional targeting of civilians. The resistance has been remarkable, and it has been far more costly for Putin than he realized. I am seeing reports and uh, hearing anecdotally that he is uh, much more concerned about his ability to succeed. I don't think there's any way that he would be able to occupy Ukraine without a ferocious ongoing resistance. So the question is, how does this uh, end? We have to do everything we can to aid the Ukrainian people. We are passing $10 billion this week out of Congress for military and economic aid. We need to make sure that we're providing them with the missiles and uh, fighter jets they need to make this fight, and Secretary Blinken is doing that. And then we have to think about off-ramps for a ceasefire and how we can uh, bring this conflict to an end. The Russians, uh, as you point out, seem to be facing far more resistance than they planned. But you got to think, you know, if someone's trying to take your country, uh, you're going to fight pretty hard and probably harder than the people who are just coming in to take it. But the Russians have also, as I understand it, enlisted the help of Syrian fighters who are very skilled uh, at urban warfare. Doesn't that suggest that they are digging in for a long, bloody urban battle with lots of civilian casualties? It does. I mean, they're brutal. And I don't underestimate Putin's brutality. I don't think he's going to just walk away. And it seems like he wants more than the Donbass region. And he wants more than just a bridge between Crimea and Donbass. He, he wants to take as much of Ukraine and he wants to destroy Ukraine as a sovereign nation state. It is chilling what he's doing. And that's why we have to do everything we can to assist the Ukrainians, to assist them in their fight, to the longer that they can hold on and resist, the weaker the Russian army baby comes. At some point, the Russian army will be exhausted. I've heard estimates of three weeks, four weeks, that they can't uh, continue much longer than that if they're, if they're being stalled and depleted. And so these next few weeks are going to be critical in the fight. Uh, but at the same time, we need to be aggressively pursuing diplomatic off-ramps on how do we get a ceasefire, how do we get civilians evacuated at the very least, and how do we bring this conflict to an end? Are sanctions working? 
I, I mean, we've seen continued talk about sanctions. We've heard continued threats of more sanctions. Russia has been sanctioned before, uh, yet and still civilians are being massacred and slaughtered in Ukraine. Is this policy of sanctions working? The sanctions policy uh, is working in that it is finally getting unified uh, NATO and the United States. Uh, obviously, it's hurt the ruble. It's hurt Putin uh, at, at, in his pocketbook. It's hurt some of the oligarchs. We have to do more. We have to seize the oligarchs' assets in the United States, the yachts, the bank accounts. It's naive to think that the sanctions in and of themselves are going to stop Putin. I mean, they're not going to stop uh, Putin. He's had these designs for years. This is, these are old grievances. They're a nuclear power. So we have to uh, support the Ukrainian resistance. The sanctions, though, are a clear sense of consequences uh, to make it clear to any nation around the world that they can't uh, just go do this with impunity. And I think it will give China second thoughts about uh, any uh, imperial ambition they may have to see the world engaged in this kind of economic sanctions, which may not deter Putin, but will deter countries with more interconnected economies. You are not a supporter of putting uh, boots on the ground, troops on the ground. Tell us, explain to people, and I'm not making light of the sanctions, but at the end of the day, you've got somebody who's engaging in a totalitarian land grab and you're taking his friend's boats. Why should he care about that? Well, you're taking more than his friend's boats. I mean, you're taking his friend's boats, but you're also uh, really crippling his currency. You're hurting his GDP. You're making life hard for his country economically, and it's unfortunate because the, you don't want to hurt the Russian people, uh, but the impact is devastating e economically. Uh, and so you're making the cost of continuing harder for him. Doesn't mean that he's not going to continue, uh, but the, we have to increase the costs on him, uh, both economically and with supporting the Ukrainian resistance. And then we have to offer him an off ramp on how does he end it? How do he and Zelensky end this? in something that saves Ukrainian lives, that saves people's lives, and that uh, allows them to both walk away. The Ukrainians have asked for help that NATO countries don't yet seem willing to provide. They've asked for establishment of a no-fly zone, and so far the answer on that has been no. Do you think that uh, the NATO countries are doing enough to help Ukraine? I do, given the risks. I mean, the question is, do you want to risk a shooting war with Russian planes? I don't think so. I think that's what could start a world war. I think that is a danger when Putin has already talked about nuclear weapons. That is uh, the reality of the situation. And that's why I support the president's prudence in avoiding escalation. Of course, it's horrific what we're seeing on social media, on television, uh, with uh, mothers being killed, children being killed. And you want to, any, any part of justice wants to stand up for the Ukrainian people, not at the expense of triggering or risking a world war. And that is the difficult decision the president has in front of him. And I support him in going to the line and doing as much as he possibly can, in his view, without risking a direct war with Russia. It's a fine line, though, isn't it, Congressman? Because, you know, if history is any guide, uh, not doing something and letting a totalitarian take what countries he wants 
usually doesn't stop somebody who's insistent on taking land. Um, we all, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the Hitler analogy is too often used. I think both of us might agree by uh, everybody in, in heated political conversation. But this is what he did. He said, I'm taking a country, then I'm taking another country. No, 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 I'll stop. I'll stop now. Just let me have this country and I'll stop. He didn't stop. So why should we think that Putin will be any different? Well, because we've made it very clear that we will go to war if he comes into NATO. And the president, I think, by sending serious troops, serious air power, uh, artillery to our NATO countries has made that line very, very clear. This is not a new thing in the United States. I mean, uh, we can argue the, the past, but of course, the Soviet Union marched into uh, Hungary and marched into Czechoslovakia and the United States under Eisenhower, we didn't do anything there to stop them, but we did have our line in Western Europe. And I think NATO is that line. It's hugely problematic from a human rights perspective. There are people who regret that the United States didn't do more back then, but I think the same calculation was there. We didn't want to risk a nuclear war with uh, a superpower. Do you think that uh, Putin is playing with a full deck right now? There have been some reports that the isolation of the pandemic may have uh, compromised his faculties uh, to some extent. Uh, are you seeing any of that? Do you believe that to be a factor here? I don't know. I don't know whether he is or not. I think he's certainly living in a bubble. I think he hasn't gotten the clear information about how difficult the Ukrainian resistance will be. You know, I wouldn't assume that he is acting uh, purely in a rational basis, which is why I think the president is being so careful and not trying to escalate the situation and trying to de-escalate and not responding tit for tat uh, and being the responsible uh, power. Look, Russia is a country in decline. It's 1.6 trillion GDP. The market cap in my district and the surrounding areas is $11 trillion. So it's a declining nation with a lot of oil and uh, with a lot of nuclear weapons. But uh, that makes them far more desperate than, than we are. And we have to make sure that we're uh, being as responsible. We have a lot more, a lot to lose. Putin doesn't. You talked about finding a way out because, uh, you know, it strikes me, Congressman, that few things are more dangerous than someone or something who feels like they are cornered. And we are talking about a nuclear armed power. Uh, should we be concerned because he, you know, Putin's been using the nuclear word. Uh, should Americans be worried and should we be preparing for something more? Well, we should be concerned. I don't think uh, we need to be having nuclear drills at the matter of in terms of ordinary Americans, but our policymakers should be very concerned. Our president, our national security council, I know they are, and the secretary of state, and they ought to do everything possible to de-escalate that. Uh, this is not a time for gamesmanship or false bravado. This is a time to de-escalate that situation. It's why they have done uh, everything possible to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia. I just sort of speaking a little bit about what you're seeing on the ground in Ukraine and uh, the resistance and the fierce determination of the Ukrainian people. Uh, I want to ask you, Congressman, how that impacts you personally. Uh, your family story um, is one of uh, fighting for freedom. I know that your maternal grandfather uh, was a fighter for Indian liberation. Uh, against the British. What do you feel, what's it like for you personally, sort of watching a country fight for their 
right to be uh, self-determining. Well, it's, it's a sense of heroism, of caring for them, of uh, extreme admiration in a time where probably the world could use more heroes. Uh, and uh, it is, in some ways, the fight that my grandfather had. Of course, that was a different circumstance of the nonviolent movement with Gandhi, where uh, Gandhi uh, influenced an entire country to uh, demonstrate for their independence through nonviolence. Now, they weren't facing uh, missiles and bombs, so it was a different circumstance. Uh, it, as cruel as British colonialism was, it, it wasn't Putin. Uh, but the, you know, my grandfather spent four years in jail for that principle uh, and uh, lived to see a free India. So I understand uh, through his stories what people will endure, what will they will go through uh, for the right to self-determination, for the right to dignity, for the right to freedom. And it's I get most inspired when I see these uh, the fathers that take their families to safety and then instead of staying there, uh, go back to Ukraine and they say, I'm prepared to die for my country, to fight for my country. It's an extraordinary sentiment uh, and one that I uh, have true respect and admiration for. Well, you know, hearkening back to your grandfather, uh, the children and grandchildren of some of those who are fighting for their country uh, right now, who are fighting for Ukraine, may very well find themselves one day uh, sitting in the position that you do, Congressman, serving your own country. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in America, both as a consequence of uh, the war in Ukraine and more generally. We are seeing gas prices through the roof, and you know this. I mean, uh, you represent the Silicon Valley, uh, northern part of California. Cap gas prices in California, never cheap. Um, are now just uh, prohibitive for people, as is true in so much of the country. So how are Americans going to get through this? Well, what we need to understand is that the oil companies have been making record profits. I mean, uh, $9 billion Exxon's profits, other companies with billions and billions of dollars of profits, and 40% of them are going into stock buybacks. And that's why uh, several of us on the Hill have been proposing a windfall tax on those extraordinary profits and giving those checks to working class Americans and putting that investment in renewable energy. That's what the UK's labor leaders, uh, Keir Starmer has proposed. That's what the European Union is proposing. It's unconscionable that at this time of crisis, oil companies are making record profits and we're getting fleeced at the pumps with $5, $6 gas. You signed on to the Green New Deal uh, do you think that now, if ever there were a time to open up drilling in America, some say now is the time. Uh, do you agree with that? I don't, because this is not an issue of uh, production as much as oil profits. I mean, if the oil companies weren't making billions and billions of dollars of profits and were actually having uh, reduced prices, that would be one thing. But a lot of this has been the oil companies taking advantage of the market price of, of oil in the world. And I think what this teaches us is that we shouldn't be reliant on petrostates for oil and gas, and we ought to have a major moment of investment in renewable energy. We ought to pass the president's 400 to $500 billion investment in, in renewable energy. But I am for making sure that consumers pay less, and I think that the windfall profit tax and distribution to consumers is one way of doing that. You've described yourself as a progressive capitalist. 
Um, a lot of people might think that those terms are uh, oxymoronic. I do not, but I'll let you explain uh, what, what, what that means. What's a progressive capitalist? Well, very simply, it's I believe in markets. I believe in innovation, entrepreneurship. I think that that's a wonderful thing to allow people to have their self-expression and to create new things in, in the nation and the world. But I want everyone to have the shot I did, to have go to a good public school, to not have to worry about health care, to have nutrition, to have people in my community who rooted for my success. And that's what makes me progressive. And I guess my view is if we could have everyone have the shot and chances I did growing up in an upper middle class, middle class family of immigrants, uh, we'd be fine. But, you know, the just going back to the issue about gas prices, part of why people don't have a shot is that so many people can't just, I mean, they just can't get by. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that, you know, there's a lot of what uh, the Green New Deal advocates and what a lot of, uh, I think, what's advocated by a lot of folks in the, prog in the Progressive Caucus that a lot of Americans, I'd say, even the mainstream working folks, um, they they aren't necessarily buying it. You know, they are leery when they hear language about like you know cutting profits. I mean, let's just break it down. Yes, you're talking about oil companies, but you know, look, I I, I host a court show where people come on and they have all kinds of reasons why they shouldn't pay a bill to somebody because that other person, you know, makes more money than them. So a lot of people see the analysis that's used against oil companies and the Amazons and all of the other, you know, billionaire giants. They're like, yeah, but you know, if you keep rolling that forward, that logic's going to mean that. You know, my cousin Amy doesn't have to pay me back if I uh, have an advanced degree. So sometimes the, the logic doesn't resonate with people. What, what do you say to that? Well, I definitely think we have to talk about it, creating more economic opportunity. I mean, a lot of places, people, communities have not had the opportunities. Like I said, $11 trillion of wealth in my district because of digital jobs and uh, 25 million of them. And many communities haven't had access to them. And that is that's expanding the pie. It's encouraging things like Intel going to Ohio to create new jobs. But I, I think people should be entitled to a profit in this country and they should be entitled to, to even become billionaires. I know I'm not one of those people who say, uh, let's outlaw billionaires, but I don't think that those profits should be excessive where there isn't uh, competition. And I think what you have right now is a sense that some people at a time where a lot of Americans are sacrificing those folks in those positions are not. And people in America want fairness. They have no problem with people getting rich or making billions. They just want to make sure everyone benefits. So Jeff Bezos wants to make billions of dollars at Amazon. Great. But Amazon should pay its taxes and Amazon should uh, pay its workers well. Elon Musk wants to be a billionaire and has been innovative with Tesla. Great. But he can be in, have a neutrality agreement to make sure that he doesn't go against unions. So I think people are fair. They just want they want our billionaires to be fair, not that they don't want billionaires to exist. You've actually done things with colleagues across the aisle, which uh, seems to be a little bit of an, uh, an unusual thing uh, these days. But talk to us about how you are trying to work with uh, your GOP colleague in Kentucky to create new economic opportunity for Americans who've been displaced. We... Um Worked very closely together, uh, Hal Rogers, who calls that area Silicon Holler, which I was uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, enamored by. And I went down there. I mean, I and it was largely Hal Rogers' efforts. He had the Appalachian Regional Commission fund uh, Interapt, uh, which was a company that 
created all these jobs for people in Paintsville, Kentucky. One of them, Alex Hughes, making refrigerators, making dishwashers, but doing that with modern day sensors. And my contribution there was just to frankly tell the story. They were so proud of what they'd done. They wanted someone to come up over there and say, look, uh, we, we want economic opportunity. We want these digital jobs. We want to participate. And we have all this talent and don't overlook us, uh, invest in us. I think that this is the opportunity for the modern economy, the digital economy. 25 million digital jobs, more than manufacturing and construction combined. These aren't coding jobs. In fact, the new mantra is low code, no code. These are often jobs that you got to have a little bit of software to be able to do things like what we're doing. Uh, but you're doing these jobs in manufacturing, in retail. They pay twice the, the, the median average, $80,000. We've got to democratize access to them, have them in rural America, have them in black and brown communities. Tell me about your book, uh, A Manifesto for Dignity in a Digital Age. Uh, I'll tell you, because that is something that does seem uh, oxymoronic. Dignity in this digital age where so few people, <laughs> where it seems like it's being stripped of us daily. Tony, that's the thesis of it, that we've got to give more people the opportunity to create wealth, to build wealth in a modern economy. I see the optimism in my district of young kids. They've got robotics workshops in their garages. They dream of being entrepreneurs. Many of them will succeed. And I, I'd say, why isn't that opportunity? Why isn't that possibility there in so many other parts of America? Why can't we take all of these opportunities and democratize it, decentralize it? And the book talks about how we can do that and why that matters, because it's not just about the redistribution of benefits. It's about the distribution of opportunity uh, and, and that's what dignity is about. People want to contribute. They want to build things. They want to be able to have control over their uh, environment. I love what you're doing, and I love this focus on creating new opportunity for people because at the end of the day, that's what people want. I mean, they're looking for ways to get better jobs and support their families. But one of the things that I was also really taken by was how you went to this place in Kentucky um, and met these folks who were not in your district and, you know, don't vote for folks in your party. And you were able uh, to get something done, which strikes me as a rare example of uh, cross-partisan uh, creativity these days. Um, are, are things on the Hill as toxic as they seem to be when I read all of my headlines in the morning. I mean, you got some colleagues up there. They cannot get away with any of that stuff in almost, I'm not gonna name names, but you know the names. Uh, there is no place where that kind of behavior would be tolerated, um, at least that, that, that I know of many places. Um, yet and still they're able to parade around Capitol Hill and say and do things that are, are just uh, shocking, frankly. Um, are, are things as bad as they seem or are we just seeing the worst of it? And they're pretty bad in <laughs> terms of the toxicity. Uh, and uh, it's worse than I've, I'm in my sixth year in Congress. It's the worst it's been. And I got into Congress the year Donald Trump got elected. As my brother puts it, the year anyone could get elected. But it's worse now. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't 50 to 100 Republicans who you can sit down and talk to and work with, people like Kyle Rogers, people like Mike Gallagher, people uh, like uh, Jody Arrington. And I try to not personalize the conflicts. Uh, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I got criticized, probably justifiably so, for uh, in some ways working with Matt Gates. Uh, I have no idea that it's the scandal would break out. But I'll tell you what, he was very helpful in trying to end the Yemen war. It was something I was passionate about. We would never have gotten the Republican votes if it weren't for working with him. So I have the view that I'm here to represent a constituency 
my colleagues are here to represent constituencies and I've got to do my best to work with them uh, because that's respecting the people who send them there. Before we go, I, I just want to turn back to Ukraine and get your sense of where things are going to go. Since we've been talking, um, I saw a headline that said that Russia's proposing a ceasefire. Um, I don't know the terms of it or the details of it or whether or not it will take or hold. But how much longer do you think the Ukrainian people will continue to resist? Because we are, you know, NATO is planning a, a good deal of military aid uh, if that goes through. How much longer? I think they're there to fight for their nation. And I think that resistance will continue for as long as it takes, whether it's months or years. I, I, I met the mayor of Kiev in Munich with, when I was there with Speaker Pelosi. He's a 6'7 boxer, and you left knowing he was going to fight. And uh, this is their homeland. This is their uh, their nation. This is something they're proud of. They're not going to give it up. And that's what Putin has miscalculated. I don't know if he's going to succeed in taking over more cities. I don't know if he's going to succeed in uh, ousting Zelensky. I do know this. He won't succeed in occupying Ukraine. They, the people there are too proud. They're too resilient. Uh, and he can't just have a puppet government. And I think that's where his fundamental miscalculation was. And, and fair enough. And even my question, I think, was too assumptive because it suggested that at some point uh, the Ukrainian resistance wouldn't continue. And it's really, it's been much stronger and more fierce than I think a lot of people anticipated, as is the case when you're fighting for your homeland. Do you think that this becomes Russia's Afghanistan? I do. I gave an interview in Foreign Policy magazine. I said, this is Russia's Afghanistan. Exactly. I think that was the headline of it. I think the reason is that you you have massive resistance. That is a incredibly uh, a powerful force. And you've got a country of 40 million. You've got a country of people who have pride. They, they, they may have had some sympathy to Russia a decade ago, but now they hate the Russians. Even the Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, many of them hate the Russians. And so you've had Putin really, in a, ironically, foment Ukrainian nationalism as, a, as a, a resistance to Putin's aggression. What is your message, Congressman, before we go uh, to Americans who, while sympathetic to the plight of the Ukrainians, while horrified by what they're seeing on television, um, you know, disgusted by a totalitarian land grab, are also like, I can't afford to live if gas prices keep going up. I heard an interview with someone who said that uh, he's losing now an extra, I think, 30% of his pay just to pay the costs of going to work. There's no sign that that's going to ease up anytime soon. We were already being battered by different inflationary pressures. So tell us, you're on the Hill. You are a, a decision maker and someone with power and influence. Uh, tell us what's next and how are we going to get through this? Well, I totally am sympathetic to that person. I mean, the, the reality is gas prices are killing us. It was five bucks in the Bay Area. It's going up. And uh, and that's hard for working families. It's hard when we just are getting out of the pandemic. It's hard when we've had inflation. But we need to do whatever we can to reduce the cost. And that's why either we got to put more money in the pockets of working families by passing something like Build Bag Better or we need to take the, some of the profits that these oil companies have made and give it back to, 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 to working families. But the most important thing is uh, we have to find off-ramps for this war to ultimately end. The, the uh, instability Russia is, we don't get much oil from Russia, but it's the third largest 
uh, producer of oil in the global market, and that makes the price go up in the global market. So it is in our interest to have a ceasefire and peace, and that is why I have resisted, while standing with the Ukrainians, resisted this easy hawkish now, so let's just go fight the Russians, let's start a no-fly zone. Uh, that would have a spiraling effect and make things worse. You're on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, Congressman. What does an off-ramp look like? Uh, as we've heard what the two positions are, uh, Russia is asking for things that Ukraine is very insistent on not giving, and Ukraine is insistent on a level of self-determination that Russia does not seem interested in providing it. So what might an off-ramp look like? Well, I think an off-ramp is not from for me to, to offer, but for Zelensky to offer. And I think what we ought to do is really encourage uh, and support President Zelensky. But my sense is President Zelensky is prepared to negotiate. I, I don't know the details of what he is prepared to do, but I think if he wants to make any compromises, uh, the United States should entertain that. It, it, and not uh, our concern should be with U Ukrainian people and Zelensky. And they're the ones who are suffering the brunt of the hardships and the hostility and the fire. And so your point is that any off-ramps should be off-ramps that are dictated by the priorities and needs of the Ukrainian people. Do you think then that uh, the United States and NATO nations wouldn't have a hand in trying to shape the terms of a ceasefire? We would. Uh, we certainly would. And we can certainly have a kind of discussion with our allies and with Zelensky. But I think those are things that uh, we'd want to see what Zelensky is comfortable with and not be public about things that the Ukrainian people wouldn't, wouldn't want or be fine with because we can't sell out their dignity or sell out their, their sovereignty, uh, especially given the resistance they've shown. But if they come to a uh, sense that they want some solution that is, uh, that is feasible, then we have a, uh, every obligation to, to try and not to uh, incite or inflame the situation to an extent that that makes it hard uh, to do. Do you think that we have been too public about the military strategy? Because it seems that, you know, there's a statement, oh, we're going to sanction Putin personally. And he says, this is an act of war. Uh, there's a suggestion of establishing a no-fly zone. Putin says, that will be an act of war. And I know it's hard, you know, in speaking of the digital age, it's hard to keep all of this in the box. But is there, you know, are we broadcasting too many of our next steps to our detriment? No, I thought the president was brilliant in releasing the intelligence initially, so the whole world knew what Putin's doing. And I think the president's doing this to be transparent. The president doesn't want to take anyone by surprise. He doesn't want to take Putin by surprise. And in part, he's saying, look, I'm going to be predictable. We're the United States. We're going to be transparent. We're going to be predictable so that you don't do something unpredictable uh, out of irrational fear. Uh, I think the president is trying to minimize the uh, chances of accidental warfare. Uh, where a, a adversary miscalculates or misunderstands our intentions by being overly clear uh, about what we want to do. Congressman Khanna, I am so grateful for your time. Uh, you've got a very full plate, and I appreciate your taking a few minutes to talk about all of this with us. Thanks for being here, Congressman. Tanya, thank you. Thank you for your voice and all that you do. I'm a fan, and I congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you.